morning and happy Palm Sunday. Um, these different times of the year on our worship and liturgy calendar um, are festive and exciting, and at the same time, they present a challenge uh, for preaching uh, series, for a preaching series, and for preachers who are preaching through our preaching series because you have to hit the pause button. And sometimes, you know, that's appropriate, like today and next Sunday. But what I've chosen to do um, this morning is stay in the book of Luke, but simply tell Luke's account of um, the triumphal entry. Uh, So as we read our text this morning, we're not going to hear anything about palm branches. And that's not because Luke is disagreeing with the other gospel writers about them waving palm branches, it's because of who Luke's audience is. Luke is writing mostly to Greeks and to Gentiles and Gentile Christians who are not familiar with the significance of the palm branches. A a moment ago, uh, um, Mike and Carol touched on the significance of the palm branches. Of course, it uh, it was something that was done when David was anointed as king. And also there's a connection to one of the Jewish festivals, the Festival of Booths. But for Gentile hearers of Luke's gospel and readers of Luke's gospel, they're not familiar with that imagery and symbolism. So Luke leaves it out and mentions the other fact that they laid down their cloaks on the road. And we'll talk about the significance of that. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. And we'll revisit this again down the road as we move through the book of Luke. But by that time, you'll all have forgotten it. So <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be just fine. Um, and we're going to be reading um, Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the mountain of olives, olives, the whole multitude of his disciples... The multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And he drew near and saw the city, and he wept over it. 
saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Father, we thank you this morning for um, this account of the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, which marks the beginning of uh, what the church observes as Holy Week, the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. We pray now that you would illuminate our hearts through this uh, narrative and help us to glean the import and power of this story of Jesus' entry and um, his prophecy, his humble coronation, and even entering into the temple. Father, thank you now for Jesus. We ask that you would bless us in this place. In your son's name, amen. This section in scripture is really quite remarkable. Um, It's remarkable because in verses 19 through 46, you'll notice I added a couple more verses on there than was on the screen, I think. Um, We see Jesus in this uh, three-fold office. Jesus as the king, Jesus as a prophet, and then later in verses 45 and 46, Jesus as priest. He enters the temple and essentially takes over the temple for the entire week, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But as we move through this passage of scripture, as we move through these verses, I just want you to note as you recognize these three different, this threefold office of Jesus as king, as prophet, and as priest. Um, this threefold office is recognized, and, and it's, it was actually first illuminated by John Calvin. And it's not exactly what our sermon is about this morning, but it's something, it's a, it's a theological footnote that I want you just to be aware of as we move through it, because it helps us to understand what's going on here. Jesus is actually the fulfillment of each of these ideals, right? So king, prophet, priest, some people say prophet, priest, king, doesn't matter how you say it, but those, those three different offices, Jesus functions um, as a king, he is great David's greater son. Um, he is Israel's eternal king. He's the prophet that Moses um, said would speak for God himself. And he's the ultimate high priest, uh, the Bible says in, in the book of Hebrews, after the order of Melchizedek, who has no beginning and no end. You might remember last week uh, in Luke 3 that uh, Luke identifies the power brokers of the Mediterranean world in the first century. Remember last week we talked in Luke 3 about Caesar and Pilate and wicked King Herod. Remember we talked about that? And the reason that that's important here is there's a contrast going on. 
Here in this passage, there's this contrast between what we read last week in Luke chapter 3. The king of Israel was supposed to be the ideal Israelite. In other words, he was supposed to be the ideal citizen, right? So you think of your mayor, right? If you, if you found out your mayor was doing something that was inappropriate or scandalous, right, it would cause a lot of problems because the mayor, above all people, right, he's supposed to be an ideal citizen, right? His grass isn't supposed to be yellow. Well, here, here that may not be a big deal. In California, if you've got yellow grass, you know, there's something wrong. You're not watering your grass. You're not a good neighbor, but um, <laughs> he's the ideal uh, he's the ideal citizen. The king of Israel was supposed to be the ideal Israelite. Um, but Herod was a selfish, oppressive tyrant. The prophet was supposed to be the mouthpiece for God to the nation, but because of the hardness of his heart, um, because of the hardness, excuse me, of Israel's heart, um, they were, their ears were deaf to the prophets. So God sent prophets time and time again throughout the centuries, and the people didn't rejoice at the prophets, they persecuted the prophets, right? Isaiah and Jeremiah. If you know the story of the prophets, you know, the prophets really had a hard time. They were persecuted by the nation. Centuries later, religious people looked back on the prophets and said, you know, yes, you know, we, Moses and Elijah were, and Isaiah were mighty men, and Jesus says, no, you're the children of the people who persecuted them. And, and you yourselves essentially are carrying on that spirit of oppression against God's message. Um, and Luke also gives us the names of the high priests in Luke 3, Annas and Caiaphas. And they were so, so preoccupied with securing their own authority that they were blind to the abuses going on in the temple or com- complicit with it. Um, but the high priest was supposed to minister in the temple of God on the people's behalf, praying and sacrificing. So again, just notice these contours of our passage as we move through it. Um, This part of Luke's narrative marks the beginning of what the church calls Holy Week. Essentially, it's the start of Jesus' final week of his life where the sum and substance of his message reaches a tipping point in the city of Jerusalem where he's brought into conflict with the nation's political and religious leaders. So here's what's going on. Pilgrims are flooding into the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has a population normally of about 40,000 people in the first century during this time. But when Passover week is, is, uh, happens, the week building up, pilgrims start to flood into the city and the, the, the amount of people in the city might be six to seven times that amount. So uh, you're talking about over, um, you know, o- over 100, over 200,000 people in the city. And the city of Jerusalem is not as big as it is today. It was actually much smaller, if you're familiar with the old city walls. So you're talking about tens of thousands of people rushing into the city of Jerusalem... Jesus' entry into the city is not just by happenstance. It's not just a coincidence. He is strategically planning his entry into the city for Passover week for this specific purpose to come into conflict with the religious leaders of the nation. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. So we read that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and he's bringing his message 
which he knows is going to create a collision. And we see in the very first passages here that Jesus tells his disciples to go and fetch him a colt um, through the towns as he's coming through the towns of Bethpage and Bethany. So imagine he's coming up over these little villages um, and he's, he's got Jerusalem in his view and he's headed towards Jerusalem. And Luke tells the story um, to give us some forward progress and momentum. They're moving along there. They're going forward. He's riding towards Jerusalem. And as I mentioned a minute ago, you know, it, it, would, be like, it would be like lighting a match to a barrel of oil. I mean, that's just how volatile the situation is. And Jesus is, is going headlong right into this, you know, this kind of tinderbox of, of tension. And the idea of the cult is actually a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 9 and 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's riding victorious, righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And he goes and he tells them to grab this colt, uh, which has never been saddled before, which is fitting for a king, right? Uh, um, uh, A donkey or a colt that's never been ridden before. And they go and they get him and Jesus... um, Jesus mounts this colt and is riding along, and they lay their their garments down in front of him. The other Gospels say they lay their garments, and they also lay down and waved palm branches. Here's the idea. Uh, The king, King Herod, is in a palace with great opulence and power and political power and influence and wealth. And here is Jesus, the true king of Israel, on a donkey... And people are laying down their garments on the pathway in front of them. Now you think, well, was there, why, 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 are the, why are they laying the garments down? Laying your garments down, actually to this day, the idea still continues, is essentially like laying out the red carpet, right? You've watched like the Grammys or the Oscars, right? And the stars get out of their limos and there's a red carpet as they enter. They're, they're basically giving them the VIP treatment. Well, laying down a garment for someone really important a dignitary or a king, uh, let alone the Messiah, is actually a great honor because you're not offended if a donkey steps on your garment because who's riding on the donkey? And you could pick up your garment and say, you know, the king of Israel rode over this garment. And so the idea is they're laying out this red carpet for Jesus, and it's the disciples who start praising him. Now here, here's where it gets a little tricky because in their, in their mind... Everything they've seen Jesus do for the last three and a half years, um, for them, in their mind, Jesus is going into Jerusalem. Finally, the day is here. He's going to uh, you know, he's going to boot Herod out from his palace, and Jesus is going to take his rightful place as the ruler, the Messiah, the King of the nation. Finally, it's here. They really don't understand what's going on. They really don't understand that Jesus intends to get himself killed. They don't really understand that. And so even their praise of, you know, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're still thinking, yeah, he's going in there and he's going to, you know, throw off the yoke of our oppressors, the Romans, and take his rightful seat on the throne. But they're praising him and Jesus lets them praise him because he really is the king. And so up until this point, you may remember that there are so many places throughout the Gospels where 
people would say, truly you're the Messiah or you're, you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus would always say, you know, don't tell anyone. There's like this messianic secret going on. But here, at the beginning of Holy Week, as he enters into Jerusalem, he lets them praise him and acknowledge him as the king. And um, it would be, a good analogy would be in the pre-revolution days, uh, pre-American revolution days, if the Sons of Liberty were in a dusty old New England tavern and they were talking with George Washington and, um, you know, they declared a toast to George, America's true leader. Well, that would be great for them, but if anyone heard, you know, anyone, uh, if the Tories, if you will, you know, heard about it, uh, it would be scandalous. It would be uh, treasonous. And essentially, that's what's going on. The Pharisees hear Jesus' disciples calling him the king, and they say, you know, Jesus, tell them to cut that out. And Jesus responds, and he says, if they were to remain quiet, the very stones, remember what John the Baptist said in Luke 3 last week? You know, he said, don't think to say to yourselves, we're sons of Abraham, for God is able to raise up seed from these very stones. And Jesus says, if they were to be quiet, these very stones, even nature acknowledges the glory of God. That's what he's saying. Even nature acknowledges the glory of God. Psalm 19 says, the, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. As I read this passage and I was meditating on Jesus' words that the stones would cry out, I thought about what nature is. Nature just does not just serve, a, a, it's just, it doesn't have just a, a, a functionary role, but the beauty of nature, the glory of the, the forests and the deserts and the streams and the waterfalls and the mountains and the contours and landscapes of geography is really nature's way of praising God. If humans refuse to open their mouth and praise and worship God, nature is a constant witness to the glory of its creator. And that's what Jesus is saying. Even creation is able to recognize God's Messiah, which is really a great indictment against them. But when Jesus realizes that the religious leaders still don't get it and aren't going to get it, it actually devastates him. Not because he's surprised by it, but because he loves the people and he mourns over their fate. And as he approaches the city, he pulls his colt over to the side of the road and he breaks down in tears. In verse 41 it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is a powerful image. The word here, wept, in and the original language means not just to cry. It means to lament, to sob deeply. In fact, if you were just a stone's throw from where Jesus parked his colt, you could hear him probably crying and weeping and sobbing. You know, have you ever been to a funeral and the person who's passed away was so loved by his family 
and friends that you can just hear the sobs. And it just breaks your heart to hear the deep sobs of maybe a man's mother or his wife or his children. Jesus is sobbing deeply over Jerusalem's fate. Sobbing deeply. He's not immune to tears. You know, he weeps at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And now he weeps over the city, and there's no one there to console him. And these tears really reveal the heart of the gospel. See, God deeply desires men to know him, and it grieves God that they choose destruction rather than repentance. Yeah, God is grieved when men resist repentance. God is grieved by that. Sometimes we think that God's judgment, justice, holiness, and righteousness is kind of cold and mechanical, right? If there's one thing, right, we as Reformed people, one thing we know is that God is holy and we're sinners, right? We, there's no, we're not confused about that. And we know that God is just in judging the wicked. That's one thing, right, we've, we've got a handle on. But sometimes in the process of that theological knowledge, we can think of God's interaction with the reprobate and the wicked as being kind of cold and detached, and it isn't. God is deeply grieved by the rebellion of sinners, especially when the gospel message comes to them and they will not repent. They choose destruction over life and salvation, and Jesus is deeply grieved over this. You know, it's similar when a judge hands down a sentence to a violent young criminal. And before the sentence come, comes down, the judge has a speech. And he, and he basically explains the potential, the wasted potential of this young man. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, ever, ever watched court hearings or you've ever seen things like that. But essentially, the judge is grieved because he says something like, you know, you, have all, you had all the potential in the world a family who loved you or resources in your neighborhood, you're smart, you know, you're good looking, and there's all these things, you know, all these accolades. And he says, but you chose to, to waste all of that potential and you chose destruction. And then the sentence is passed down. So there's not this cold, mechanical, detached judgment. There is this heartfelt grief that instead of repentance and life, they've chosen destruction. And... The king now gives this prophecy. He utters, Jesus utters this and delivers this chilling prophecy. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days are coming upon you, Jesus says, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you. And hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. He's talking to Jerusalem and its inhabitants. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Remember John's words last week in Luke 3? When he said, who has warned you of the wrath to come? Now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Jesus is picking up on this language of judgment. And he is essentially saying, of all people, you, God's chosen holy race, Israel, of all people, if you had only known the things that God has provided for you to have peace, 
Not peace with the Romans. Not peace in your heart. Not an inner peace, but peace with God. That's the peace that Jesus is talking about. He said, if you only recognized the provisions that were being made for you to have peace with God right now, but you've rejected it. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, the opportunity for peace with God has come and gone. It was offered to you, and you spat in God's face, you rejected it, you swatted God's hand away, and now it's been removed. That offer of, of salvation is being removed from you, and now your eyes are blinded. And Jesus predicts essentially what happens years later in the Roman Jewish War, some 37 years after his ascension, um, roughly, the, the Jews pick a fight with the Romans in A.D. 67. And the Romans come on down with their legions. And six Roman legions, which is approximately 60,000 troops, cut off and circle around the city of Jerusalem and cut off the city. And that goes on for three years until the city is destroyed and the temple is burnt to the ground and looted. This statement here harkens back to something Jesus says in Luke 13, 34. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you, your children, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? How often would I have taken you to myself and gathered you and taught you and cared for you and loved you, but you refused, Jesus is saying. Behold, your house has become desolate. When I read this, I thought of David's statement in 2 Samuel 18, when Absalom, some of you may know the story, David's son Absalom rebels against him and leads a coup d'etat against his power. And ultimately Jehu, David's general, finds Absalom as a, and kills him. And David mourns over Absalom and says, Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, how I would have given myself to die in your place. Those words just came to my mind as I was reading this. Just the deep grief that God's people, God's first son, Israel, in Scripture, rejected him. Have you ever warned someone about something um, really important and given them really good advice only to see them completely disregard your advice and then suffer the consequences as a result. And there's this deep frustration. I don't know if you've ever had that happen when you've given someone advice and they didn't heed your advice. There isn't this sense of deep satisfaction. There isn't this sense of, aha, I told you so. There's a grief and a frustration because the consequences could have been avoided. And that's where Jesus' heart is. There's a grief and frustration that this destruction that is coming on the nation and on the city, it could have been avoided. He's telling a nation that has suffered under centuries of oppression and occupation, mostly due to their hard hearts, that true peace has been offered and made available to them. But the opportunity is gone now. And these fateful words from Malachi that we talked about over the last couple of weeks come ringing back into our ears. This prophecy about um, John who comes in the spirit of Elijah, 
about the ministry that he would do. He would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And, and this, there's this statement here. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And now this is coming to pass. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. And here's something that we shouldn't miss as we think about this statement, this prophecy. And you might be asking, why are you so hung up on this prophecy? Let's, let's move along, Jordan. Let's move along in the story here. The reason that I want you to focus on this prophecy is because the church kind of just, a lot of people, we just skip right over this and we don't think much about it. But I want you to recognize that God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The destruction of Jerusalem is the vindication of God's rejected son. You remember the parables, uh, some of the parables, one of the parables of the, the husbandman, right? Uh, the man who, who rents out his vineyard and the tenants refuse to give him the fruits of the vineyard and he sends servants. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew. He sends servants and they beat the servants And the owner of the vineyard says, well, I'll send my son, and surely they'll reverence my son. And when they recognize the son, they say, this is the heir. Let's seize him and kill him. And this is this indictment on the nation that they're not mistaken about who Jesus is. They actually, the religious leaders actually know who he is. And they've chosen to reject him. The last time Jesus... um, is at the temple, is 12 years old. Let me back up, verse 45. Finally, there's this scene at the temple. He entered the temple, verse 45, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So in contrast to Herod and the leaders of Israel, Herod and Pilate and Caesar, here's Jesus with a humble coronation riding on a donkey. In contrast to centuries of prophecies that have been ignored by the, by the people of Israel, Jesus utters this prophecy of impending destruction and doom. And in contrast to Annas and Caiaphas, these corrupt high priests, Jesus enters the temple. In fact, the reason that Jesus enters Jerusalem at the beginning of the week is because his destination is the temple. He's going to the temple, and it says, He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It's written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. If you know anything about the temple, the outer court of the temple where the people gathered and worshipped, there were, there were money changers who, if you wanted to give an offering, you couldn't give a coin with Caesar's inscription on it. You had to exchange that coin for a temple coin. And so there were money changers who were making money, right? You know how sometimes if you go to a a nation uh, where their their money is worth, you know, more than yours, you know, they make money off of you. And if you go to a third world country, you get a bunch of their money for one dollar. But so they're, they're making money off exchanging coins for temple coins because they can't give pagan coins with the image of Caesar, and they're also selling off, they're selling animals to be sacrificed. 
Now, if you were poor and you couldn't, off, couldn't afford um, a lamb, uh, you had smaller sacrifices. So there's people making money there. And what Jesus says here is one of the most stinging indictments upon the, the, the religious leaders of the nation. In the region of Judea and Samaria, there were dangerous places where if you walked along certain roads, bandits were hiding out in rocks and they would rob you and would leave you for dead and take your money and they would go hide in caves and dens. So certain parts of the countryside you stayed away from because it was really dangerous. It was essentially like, you know, it's like a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They're hiding out, you know, in, in the mountains and in the hills you know, of the desert. Well, the, the bandits hung out in caves. And what Jesus is equating, what Jesus is doing is essentially saying that the temple's leadership and those who run the temple are like bandits. They've made it a cave and a den of robbers. God's house, the temple, the place where the presence of the creator of the ends of the universe was supposed to be, has become instead a cave of bandits. That's what Jesus is saying. And he goes in, and for the entire week, he takes over the temple. In fact, from this point onward in Luke, every, every account, Jesus, day by day, until the end of the week, is teaching in the temple. He essentially takes over the outer court of the temple. And he's teaching every single day. And the Pharisees and religious leaders are infuriated by this, but they can't do anything, you know, throughout the week because the people are enthralled and, you know, just astonished at his teaching. This is actually the act that gets him arrested later on at the end of the week by taking over the temple. But the point is this, that the leaders of the nation have abdicated the high priest, their responsibilities so much so that Jesus goes in and he takes over. They are supposed to be, they're supposed to be those who watch over the nation and Jesus goes in and reproves them and teaches in the temple. He's doing what the high priest should have done and ultimately he's going to commit uh, an act that is the once and for all sacrifice of the high priest by offering himself. This is in Jesus' mind. All of the events that we have just talked about and you'll read about and we'll talk about next Sunday. None of it is arbitrary. God knew exactly what he was doing in Jesus. He's not surprised by any of it. Jesus must go to the cross, but he's grieved by the fact that those who should celebrate his atoning sacrifice are actually the ones forcing him to go to the cross because of their deep hatred for him. God came into the world in Jesus, with a specific, specific plan to redeem humanity. He wasn't taken by surprise. He offered himself willingly. And on this Palm Sunday, what we recognize is that God came into the world for the purpose of redeeming us from our sins. Yes, Jesus was grieved. He cried. There were all of these, this contortion of emotions. But all of this was in God's plan and design to redeem humanity. In fact, even the blinding of Israel was for the floodgates to open that the Gentiles, us, might be saved. Let's pray. Father, we pray, O oh God, that this story would be uh, 
uh, a preparation of our hearts for Easter Sunday. Lord, we pray, O God, that as we contemplate and meditate on these things, that our hearts would be focused on what was accomplished on Calvary for us. Lord, as we, um, as we move towards Good Friday, this coming Friday and Easter Sunday morning, Lord, help us to recognize and rejoice that we've been delivered from our sins by the atoning once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus, our high priest, our prophet, and our king accomplished on our behalf and on behalf of your people. Lord, we thank you for this in your son's name. Amen.